0: Welcome to the Who's Left Podcast, a show about Indiana politics, history, and culture from the unapologetic perspective of the Hoosier left. My name is Scott Aaron Rogers, and I'm recording from Bloomington. So today, I want to talk about toxic masculinity, what it is, what it isn't, how it affects us men, how it affects women, politics, culture. I've got a very special guest I'm excited to have with me. So... Let's let's get into this a little bit. Um, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, quote, toxic masculinity is the way men are culturally trained and socially pressured to behave, unquote. And there are three core tenets. Um, the first is toughness, you know, um, strength, aggression, um, emotional hardness that toughen up suck it up boys don't cry attitude um repression of emotions um anger as the only acceptable emotion to display uh and and shame if you have other emotions that you encounter and don't know how to deal with um and uh, the rejection of empathy uh, not being able to think about what it would be like in another person's body, you know. Uh, The second tenet is anti-femininity, the rejection of feminine traits, including emotion, um, cooperation, accepting help, and domesticity. Uh, This can manifest itself in many ways, such as uh, refusing to go see a doctor, or... Oh, you know, I got it. I'm fine. Um re- rejection of of mental health therapy as as even being a thing um can also lead to unhealthy or or risky lifestyle cho- uh, lifestyle choices like eh, you know dangerous sports um gun stuff uh or even like mundane things just like A poor diet, Uh, I I literally know dudes who are in their 60s who have never eaten a salad in their life. Um, Drug and alcohol use um, are all actually manifestations of uh, anti-feminine behavior. Uh, And the third point is power, as in men are only worthy if they have money, power, status, influence, women um can this can look like controlling or entitled behavior in professional settings social settings and even in um one's romantic life so that's your textbook academic definition of what toxic masculinity is and there there seems to be some confusion with many folks um that, that think that we're calling traditionally masculine things toxic. And that's not the case. Toxic masculinity is not, um, say, being attracted to women or working out and being muscular or playing sports or watching sports or being competitive, um, owning a gun, um enjoying action movies instead of, you know, chick flicks, working hard, being self-reliant, being a breadwinner, Um, having a control on your emotions, or you know, stoicism, being a man of few words, courage, sacrifice, um, being a protector, being logical or analytical, Um, having self-confidence or swagger. These are considered by many to be traditionally masculine traits. None of these are toxic in and of themselves. What is toxic is to think that is the only way to be a man, or that those traits need to be uh, maxed out in order for one to be a man. And a lot of times you'll hear this discussed, as a uh, a crisis of masculinity or uh, a war on men you've got um, you you've got United States Senators like Josh Hawley uh, writing a book on masculinity from a quote unquote Christian perspective um JD Vance another senator going around talking about this stuff um, former, Congressman Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina uh, making a video telling mothers to raise their sons to be monsters. Um, you've got new Speaker of the House Mike Johnson going out there and preaching in churches, talking about mm, biological determinism or Uh, complementarianism, you know, God made men this way and women this way, and they are made to complement each other, and there is no other way to be. And then Trump, obviously, that guy is still out there, and he is the epitome of toxic masculinity. So in addition to those political figures, you've got uh, cultural influencers like uh, Jordan Peterson, or uh, Andrew Tate, um, and even, you know, someone a little more mainstream, but just as toxic, I think, like Joe Rogan. And they uh, really use this this male insecurity about what it is to be a man um, to exploit this for, for profit, certainly, and they uh, especially are popular with um, boys and young men. So all these guys, they talk about a war on men or attack on men, attack on traditional masculinity. They see things like girls excelling more academically. Uh, You know, like college undergraduates, it's almost a uh, two-to-one female-to-male ratio in colleges and universities. Men are dying younger. They're dying from... You know, the quote unquote deaths of despair, drug and alcohol, abuse, suicide. And these figures see all these things as men, you know, slipping from their their once privileged position and 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 blame the culture for a war on men. And for some of us, this is this is new, but it turns out this this whole oh, war on men thing, uh, men are in as uh manly as they used to be. That's not new. There is uh, a great thread was posted on Twitter uh by a gentleman named Paul Fairy, F-A-I-R-I-E, and he lists all these new newspaper articles going back oh nearly 150 years at this point, showing that this uh moral dilemma of the wussification of men has been a concern by the reactionary right usually for a long time. Um, here's one from 2020. Right-wing influencer Candace Owens quote, "In the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time that Marxism is being taught in our uh, to our children is not a coincidence. It is an outright, attack, bring back manly men, unquote. The Center Daily Times, 2004, quote, today's men, particularly young men, are embracing their feminine sides. They're seeking sleek electronics, the right face cream, and an honest manicurist, unquote. Montreal Gazette, 1977, quote, living in high-rise apartments buildings helps make men effeminate, unquote. Chelsea News, 1965, men were increasingly avoiding their responsibilities nowadays and their increasing use of toiletries, long hair, and dandified clothes were obvious signs that men were becoming effete. Daily News Leader, 1940, American people are getting less vigorous, the men more feminine and the women more masculine because we don't eat raw meat. Scranton Tribune, 1925, man is to blame for the new order because he has changed his wardrobe. When men began to wear soft hats, silk socks, pearled colored spats, lilac pajamas, and embroidered bathrobes, the process of feminization gained a good start. Even the safety razor contributed. The Albion Argus, 1902. I notice a certain style among young men in almost every locality, a style so repulsive and weak as to shock the intelligence of raided people, the hateful style of parting the hair in the middle. If we expect to cultivate strong manhood on American soil, we will miss it if we bring forth abundant crops of feminine men. York Dispatch, 1886. Men becoming feminine in their bearing and women grow more dashing. Once it was proper for men to cultivate a martial bearing. They held their heads in the air, took manly strides, held their shoulders back, and were brisk and talkative. So, let's see. Things that uh, are responsible for the wussiness of men include uh, toiletries, high-rise apartments, lack of raw meat, um, safety razors, parting hair in the middle... There is a crisis of masculinity, but it's none of those things causing it. Since second wave feminism in the 1960s and 70s, I think in a way women have evolved or uh, leveled up, as it were, and gone into the workplace and become breadwinners and leaders and have been able to use the full range of, quote, masculine and, quote, feminine characteristics, while men have struggled and seen this as an encroachment upon their territory, if you will. And we're, like, still half people, many of us, because we struggle to find those feminine traditionally feminine traits and, uh, explore those the way women have, um, explored the more masculine traits, if you will. So we're gonna, we're gonna take a dive into this and I've got a great guest, but first I have a quick ask. Do you appreciate the Who's Left podcast? If you do, Please. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you use Apple Podcasts or another such platform where you can leave a rating or write a review, please do so. Engagement like that boosts visibility and helps the algorithm get our program out to like-minded people and hopefully even persuadable others. If you are in a position to financially support the program, the best way to do so is by subscribing at the paid level over at scotteronrodgers.substack.com. While you're there, you can find my essays, campaign finance research, and past episodes of the show. You can also find me on Facebook, the former Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon at scotterodge78. And finally... As good as a monetary contribution is, and I am beyond grateful, a share with your friends, family, strangers, passersby, helps so much. Um, Let's build a community together here. We're committed to pulling Indiana out of its right-wing stupor, and uh, hopefully having a little laugh along the way. Again, thank you so much for your support. Now, I will switch into shameless fanboy mode. My guest today is someone I have meant to have on this program before I even recorded a single word. And I asked today's guest to come on to talk about toxic masculinity because he wrote the book about it. Or at least a book about it. Jared Yates Sexton. Is a Hoosier from Linton, Indiana, and a graduated uh, graduate, excuse me, of Indiana State University. His 2020 memoir, "The Man They Wanted Me to Be," is um, an incredibly important, relevant book on this topic. And uh, as you'll hear in the interview, I, I will tell Jared it it it's one of these things that it it hit me at the right time, exactly when I needed it. Um, Jared's also the author of three collections of short stories. He gained fame tweeting from the road in 2016, following Donald Trump rallies around the country. And the 2018 book, The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, documents that, uh, that summer. 2021's American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People, Deconstructs uh, American Myths is a great introduction if you're someone who questions the popular American history you've always been taught. Um, concise, eminently readable, um, so good, like like Howard Zinn, but not nearly as long. Um, and 2023's The Midnight Kingdom, Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis uh, looks further and destructs the myths uh, around Western civilization, uh, the intersection of political and economic power and religious myth, and the the way the powerful sanctify everybody else's suffering. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the New Republic, Politico, the Daily Beast, and elsewhere. He is the host of the Muckrake podcast and author of Dispatches from a Collapsing State over on Substack. It is my great honor to welcome Jared Yates Sexton to our show. At this time, it is my honor to have Jared Yates Sexton join us here on the show. Jared, thank you so
1: much. Thanks for having me. I'm always excited to talk to fellow Hoosiers who have their head on straight. So th- this, this is the same thing. I'll guarantee my head is on completely straight, but uh, it, it, it functions.
0: So I'm going to tell my my listeners here a little story. And I wrote about this, like, in one of my earliest Substack posts. But, um, you know, for, for new listeners and then also just to, to flatter Jared here. Um, so it was summer 2020. Um, I know that was not the best time in anybody's life. Um, But I, in particular, was separated from my wife. I was staying with a friend. And, you know, it was the middle of the pandemic. And all the George Floyd protests, it sort of looked like the world was falling apart around me. And um, as a lot of people, I think, did that summer to sort of figure out what was going on in the like milieu of, of the, the, you know the united states um you know i like looked for some good books to read and in addition to looking at you know the history stuff and and why things outside were the way they were uh i you know i really had to to take some time to look at myself and what had led me to that place where I was, you know, sleeping in my friend's guest bedroom. And I looked up, just Googled books about toxic masculinity. And like the first thing that came up was a Henry Rollins review of Jared's book, The Man They Wanted Me To Be, in the LA Times. And I'm a child of the 90s. Ah, uh, I, I I grew up on some Henry Rollins, and I know that's a guy who has one like badass punk rock cred, uh, but also is like now a man of letters, very very thoughtful guy, and 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 so I ordered that book and others, um, and it it just connected with me in in, in a way, and, and sort of sent me looking um and other ways that that you know toxic masculinity and 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 just growing up in a patriarchal culture has has um shaped me and 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 how it's shaped the, the the culture and it is fair to say if I hadn't come across that review and your book then I would not be doing this I would not be here with you right now um so first of all like thank you Jared for for being there when I needed you even though you didn't know you were there when I needed you um and just you know it's been incredible to to have you and Nick a couple times a week and uh it it's just it's really a privilege to have you here.
1: Well thank you. Um I I cannot tell you how much um that touches me and, and gratifies me. Thank you so much for that. And I'm so glad that the book um, landed with you and helped. I um, th- This is where I have to be honest and tell you that that was like one of the most frightening things I've ever done in my entire life was to write that book. Um, you know, I, I lived a really rough childhood life and life and and dealt with a lot of things myself. And I, I looked at what was going on in 2016, uh, with not just Donald Trump, but the rise of things like the Manosphere and, and right-wing extremism, and, and this sort of chauvinistic fascism that was starting to build up. And I, I knew I needed to write it. And 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 like I have to tell you, there were so many times, Scott, where I was just like so ready to just pull the trigger and just stop and just tell uh counterpoint press published it you know just tell uh my editor there no we're not doing this and there was even a point like in the the revision period where i was like I, I i don't know if this is the right thing like on on one hand like i kind of cut myself and let myself bleed for the world to to decide what they thought about it and on top of that um it hurt to look in on what had happened with me what had happened with my family and the people i loved but also like this was a time period where i was getting like a ton of Mm threats you know i was having like people show up at my house constantly and threaten the people that i loved and it felt like i was handing a blueprint to the world of how to hurt me you know like it was basically like here is everything and take a look at it and figure out what it is um i will also tell you in the summer of 2020 when you were reading that book I was dealing with the fallout from that book. Like, it was an interesting thing for me. I thought I'd write that book and everything would be fine. You know, like I would put my entire past behind me. All the trauma I had gone through would go away and I would be cured. I would be over everything that had happened. But you know what's weird is once people started reading the book, and reaching out to me and I, it's not even close. I've, I've received so many more emails and notes and letters from people after this book than anything else I've ever written. And a, hardly a week goes by where I don't hear from someone. And so as a result, I am, I'm so glad that I went through with the book and hearing from you what it did for you and your family. It means everything to me. It makes it all worth it. But it was, there was a period afterwards where I, I, I had to heal from it in 2020. Like and 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 I I will be honest. I think without Donald Trump having been elected, without the pandemic of 2020, I don't think a lot of conversations like the one that I think we're getting ready to have, I don't think they would be happening. And I think that that is an important thing that that there is a necessary period of introspection and self evaluation, and above all, healing that needs to happen. And um, all of that is my very very long winded of saying of way of thing saying thank you. I, I, really it was um, a real act of vulnerability and
0: vulnerable is like one of those things that men are not allowed to
1: be um yeah yeah you're not and um you know i i grew up in an environment for anyone who hasn't read the book or my writings about it um i was basically tortured as a child for being too vulnerable and being too sensitive and and, and not being that sort of um stoic and vulnerable maleness that we both know is completely fake it's 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 a put upon um act and 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 mask that men wear in order to hide their insecurity and 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 weakness and fear but yeah the 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 vulnerability is one of the worst things that you can be as a man in american culture no doubt about it
0: so yeah you know, well that's, that's one of the one of the things i wanted to address is um the the emotional repression that is kind of like a a must in in this culture for 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 men is you are you're not allowed to have uh, any feelings other than anger. Like you you know you can you can punch a wall, that's okay. You can break something, that's okay. But you know, cry, oh, absolutely not. And um, it, it it leaves us unable to even identify other feelings. You know.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's a thing and I discovered it while I was doing this research of men go so long without being able to express their emotions that they, they atrophy, they go away to the point where like that. And, and the way that I explained it in the, in the book was you play a character for so long, like as a, as a male, well, basically what happens. And for anyone who isn't aware of this, it's a cycle of abuse is what it is. The father's who mistreat their sons, have been mistreated by their fathers, have been mistreated by their fathers, and so on and so forth, and and their peers and society and culture, and you name it. It's a it's a cycle of socialization. And what happens is men are incredibly emotional and sensitive. And 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 I I actually think we're being done. An incredible service watching people like a donald trump or an elon musk you know watching all of these so-called mm-hmm. masculine role models they are the most sensitive people like they they're paper paper thin and everybody who like takes a look at them and, and it looks for it knows it's there And so men are actually often more sensitive and more emotional Mm -hmm. than women. And, and, And tests have shown that before men are socialized, they are initially like way, way more sensitive. But what happens is that socialization process is systematic abuse and desensitization. You are beaten, you are punished, you are told over and over again that you cannot have those feelings that you cannot behave in that way. And that is backed up with violence, uh, verbal and emotional abuse. And eventually what happens is you learn to play a character. And I thought for the longest time. And this is the, the, the reason I wrote the book in the first place. I thought there was just something wrong with me. You know. All the other men that I knew. Uh, outside of like a couple of uh, people like my grandfather. Were just mm-hmm. beasts. Abusive. Mean. Stoic. Beasts. And like I just thought that there was a defect in me. There was something about me that wasn't working. And because I felt that way. I had to change myself. I had to play a character other than what I was. Unbeknownst to me, all men feel that way. All men feel like, oh my God, I'm not this thing that my father is. or I'm not this thing that all my friends are or whatever my role models are. And so as a result, you have to create a character. And the longer that you play that character, eventually you become that character. That's the damnedest thing about it, is that over time, you are desensitized to the point where you look up and suddenly you are the next stage in that cycle of abuse and socialization. All of a sudden, you are the one who is going to take your son, your nephew, uh, your kid on a team, you, some kid in a in a culture or a community, and you are going to go ahead. And what you're going to do, unfortunately, is you're going to project your own feelings about who you are and what you aren't, and you're going to project it onto that kid and then uh, carry on that cycle. Yeah, piece.
0: so it's like a textbook generational drama, right?
1: Yeah, it is. And, and you know, Scott, one of the, the weirder things about it, I'm, I'm working on my my new book now, and I'm studying the psychological implications and, and background of what has happened in American politics and I'll tell you another of the damnedest things. That cycle is not just what's happening with men. That's what's also happening with our politics. It's a group of people—you know, it, it, it's really interesting, you know. Um, I, I haven't looked today, but I have to assume that uh, as as Pizzagate has been talked about with Elon Musk um, and all of these people talking about, you know, like there are these secret right. satanic cabals doing these evil things— you know, the strangest thing is that Elon Musk, uh, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Epstein, and all these guys, the pictures, bitches, right? Like Donald Trump, they, they hung out with Jeffrey Epstein, all this stuff. But what they do is, is that they project what they hate about themselves onto the rest of the world. So in fact, what you actually see is that the right wing is living in constant fear. The world is a terrible, evil place, but it's because in their growing up, in that process that you and I are talking about with masculinity, they had to repress something in themselves. And it became evil that they had to see on the rest of the world. So really what we're talking about when we're talking about politics, when we're talking about culture, is this unconscious cycle of trauma that you just brought up that is just continually churning and churning and churning and most people have absolutely no idea that it's happening, but that's at the heart of, of most of what's happening in India. Yeah, Asian. well, yeah, one of the, the the way I like to frame it is like
0: this, this fascist turn that not just America, but a lot of the developed world is taking. Fascism is political toxic masculinity. Right. Um, yeah. I know in uh, Ruth Benyat's Strong Men book, there's a whole chapter on machismo. And you know, that's just that portion of toxic masculinity and turning up you know yourself and puffing yourself up and making yourself big, but but the cruelty, the dominance, the violence, it's 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 all in there and, and it's it's the same personal, you know, inner dynamic projected on on the world.
1: Yeah, and and to go ahead and start, I'll I'll start small and then I'll work my way out just to give people a glimpse into this. I didn't understand it until I was studying Alex Jones, and you know people know who Alex Jones is, right? And if and if you have seen Alex Jones now, listener, I want you to picture him like a big beefy guy talking about eating bacon, using yeah, stuff, like this stuff, right? Like the, this, like you know, about? <laughs> right. So actually, if you take Alex Jones. Take a look at what he says, right? This is the biggest, most influential conspiracy theorist. He says, you know, what is happening is that people outside of America are conspiring with Americans to destroy America, right? They're coming after your guns. They're trying to destroy white men because white men are the main resistance. They're the one thing standing between these evil groups and taking over America. Who are they conspiring with, Scott? They're conspiring with women. People of color, immigrants, yeah. and gay and trans people. You'll notice there's only one group of people that isn't in on the conspiracy. White <laughs> men! It's at the heart of it. It's the idea, and by the way, like Alex Jones, like is he a clown? Absolutely. But all he is doing is trumpeting the same right-wing conspiracy theories that have continually churned around this uh, toxic masculinity that we're talking about. The entire idea is that white men particularly white wealthy men should be in charge of the world people should stop it like pushing against it women need to know their place this is one of the reasons why christianity figures into this thing like they need to go ahead and 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 be subservient to their men uh you know people of color just need to be grateful that you know that they're not enslaved that's basically the entire message right like they're fine if they can be used for labor but moving along Children need to know their place. Immigrants need to stay where they are. And gay and trans people shouldn't exist, right? Because what they are are gender Mm -hmm. traitors. That's the entire mindset of what's happening with the right wing. What ends up happening is that there are times where the right wing, the Republican Party, whoever you want to call it, can be America, can be around the world. They can pay lip service to liberal democracy, but when things start getting a little wonky, when they start getting a little off kilter, when all of a sudden, you know, the rubber really meets the road, all of a sudden we start talking about who deserves resources, who deserves power, and all of a sudden that mask slips right and all of a sudden you're not having conversations about elections you're having conversations about who are the rightful rulers of the world and as a result men who again are very afraid very insecure terrified that they have to compete against women against people of color against gay and trans people against uh, people from other countries they're very very scared of that that's why they don't want it right all of a sudden they start doing the thing that you and I were talking about, which is the overcompensation. They start becoming more violent. They start becoming more uh, showy in their masculinity, right? They start using weapons. They start wearing uh, militaristic uniforms. They start behaving in aggressive manners, which if you talk to any expert about violence, they will tell you to a person, when does violence happen? It's when people feel weak and humiliated. It's not when they feel strong. It's not whenever they feel confident. It's when they feel weak and humiliated. And so as a result, it is an overcompensation that creates fascism. This is why Benito Mussolini was walking around without his shirt off, flexing his muscles, doing... Putin on the horse. Yeah. This is why Putin on the horse. This is why the the Nazis were constantly showing off their feats of athleticism and all these big, giant, uh, masculine performances. The entire point of it is, it is weakness, and it creates in itself an overly aggressive overcompensation, and that is actually the truth of what is at the heart of white supremacy, but also fascism, Nazism, and all the others. Justin Jones gives away the whole game if you look at, like, what he's selling. He, he's selling yep.
0: um, products to insecure men to make them more happy. It's all supplements and dick pills, right?
1: Like, this because you're not manly enough. Yeah. And, and, and it's not just Alex Jones. The entire scam of the right wing manosphere is that they are selling you the fear going back to what we talked about. Every man looks around and they see, you know, like take an Andrew Tate, right? Andrew Tate, who is a, a laughable villain, but also Andrew Tate has a ton of money. He has, you know, a, a physique. He's surrounded, you know, by all of these like sort of accoutrements of power. He's got women, all this stuff. What Andrew Tate does is he says, you know, that part of you that feels insecure, like you don't measure up to what a man's supposed to be. Guess what? It's right. Right. Like, and, and at the heart of American capitalism, and this is an incredible thing, at the heart of American capitalism is a fear that we are not enough that there's something a secret about us something within us that doesn't measure up and as a result we need to hide it we need to buy the right products we need to wear the right clothes we need to drive the right car we need to use the right toothpaste if we don't our women will leave us we'll be alone forever and we'll never be successful and we might as well die right what has happened here is they've just turned it up a little bit it's not even a lot you know what I mean? Like, if you actually watch commercials during an NFL uh, Sunday, like, most of the commercials tell you the same message. They're just not as aggressive. But then if you watch an Andrew Tate, if you watch Alex Jones' Bone Rock three right? The entire—or—or— uh, or, ready-made meals when your family is in your your nuclear fallout shelter are you gonna die or is your neighbor gonna die right like it all boils down to the basic premise which is you're right you do not measure up but guess what you can buy products you can give me your money i'll tell you what the secrets are we'll get you where you need to be but most of all continue that performance basically what they're selling it's almost like a halloween shop they're selling a costume And that's why we have an entire culture of men who are buying AR-15s left and right. They're buying big, giant trucks. If you go out, you're in Indiana, you know this. If you go out to the store, you're surrounded by men with shirts that say, like, come and take it with AR-15s on it, right? Or an AR-15 that says, if you're coming for it, you better bring an army. They're playing a character. They are playing a fantasy and they're spending all of their discretionary income on that fantasy that, again, comes from that inbound idea of you're not enough. Here's how you become enough.
0: So I'm going to rewind a little bit and tell you a little bit about how I grew up and those messages and, you know, the way they permeate and tell you you're not enough. So I didn't have the the, the male role model around as much. My, um, You know, my parents divorced when I was young my dad wasn't around really for quite a while i mean we, we we talk now it's great we've you know we've repaired our relationship mostly um we, we talk about everything but politics um but you know he wasn't around then my mom remarried had a stepdad for a while you know taught me how to do the the manly things like fish and hunt and ride a bike and whatnot uh but so, so you know, it's bits and pieces and mixed messages. And so, you, you know, you, you don't have that beast of a man uh, as a father figure to, to emulate and to, you know, beat the feelings out of you. So you have to figure out from the culture what it is to be a man. And, yeah. you, know, we, you know, we're a couple of years apart. We grew up on Spuds McKenzie and Kathy Ireland commercials. I, my mom was, you know, a single mom. For, for most of my youth. I've got three younger sisters. My grandma was like the other parental figure in my house. I grew up surrounded by women. I knew that, like, the, you know, the puffed up violent masculine man stuff. Like, I know that's bullshit. But the, a lot of the, the culture stuff still seeps India you. And I, I kind of think there's a lot of guys that think... Okay, I reject the violent, toxic masculinity. Um, I'm a nice guy. I'm great. Look, I, like, I recognize, I, I am, they, it's the champagne poppin' meme. You know, you, 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 you completed the first step and you think you get it. And a lot of these guys, I'm afraid, like, wind up being attracted to, like, incel culture. Because you know, you know it's, you know something's not right, but you can't put your finger on
1: it. Yeah, and you know, I you brought up Henry Rollins, and by the way, his his review of it was like one of the great um, gifts of my career when that came out. Like I had looked up to him for forever, and that came out. and It was um, it was it was like I got hit by a hammer. That that was a a very good day. I met him in chicago we did an event together at this literary thing and like we had a conversation about like the different types of guys and one of the things is I, I wrote the man they wanted me to be from the lens of the people who are at the heart of the violence of the manga community right who 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 are the people who are in danger of joining the fascist movement that was growing right and i wanted to go ahead and use that to start introducing other people to the concept of toxic masculinity but man, there are a lot of other examples of it. Like, so for instance, you know, Henry Rollins, who is a rock god. Well, you know, I, I there are like outside of like Ted Nugent, there are not a whole lot of rock gods who are like, you know, the rough tumble beast of a man that we're talking about. But what are they doing? They're artists who oftentimes are trying to prove themselves mm-hmm. through decadence. Through hypersexuality, through playing with danger, right? There are other people who they they get their rocks off by accruing wealth, right? By by accruing power, by going ahead and like proving that they're larger than and more important than other people. There are so many ways for people to do this. And the problem of it that that like we're I, I think we're sitting here making a good framework for this, a good groundwork for this. But, Scott, there's, it's, it's everywhere, even in people who know about it. Again, I wrote a book about it, and, and, and like, this isn't patting myself on the back. My book, if you Google toxic masculinity, is one of the first books that comes up, right? I wrote that book. I still have to keep an eye on it. I still have to go to therapy and talk about who I am and how I feel and what my insecurities are. And here's the reason why. This stuff is as common in American culture as oxygen. It is what is immediately in the framework of existence. We live in a patriarchal culture. We live in a white supremacist patriarchal culture. If you're a person like me who grew up in a southern Indiana evangelical home that had racist undertones and classist undertones and a whole host of other things, not to mention the fact that it was impoverished, traumatic, dysfunctional, you name it. All those things create a framework that you are going to have to work through for the rest of your life. And here's the reason why. It is one of the default settings. You get tired. You get stressed. The world is hard. I, I Listen, I know you're shocked hearing this. The world feels great right now, right? But when it gets really hard, when you get really stressed out, when you're just trying to make it, being the best version of yourself and countering all that programming is not the easiest thing in the world. and 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 whatever is there and whatever has been sort of like laid out for you, it's going to be with you for the rest of your life. But you have to work against it. and 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 that's the thing. It's a very insidious thing. Sexism, patriarchal ideas, racism, classism, all of these things, fascistic attitudes, they creep into discourse and culture and personal lives often without people knowing that they're happening and so it is um, it is a constant job is what it is it's it's a very very
0: like the classic does a fish know it's in water sort of question you know you're 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 swimming in it you don't know it's you're swimming in it It, it's just all around you it is what it is this is the normal um I had a thought but even oh I lost it I lost it okay (laughs) Well, so no, we were talking about like you know d- digging, you know digging out, and, and you know like, do, like realizing you're you're swimming in it. You still have to swim in it. It's it's um. Yeah. I like to liken it. You you're talking about you know how we're white supremacist culture and a sexist culture, and I like to liken it to like a house, and you know the Western culture, all of it is built on white supremacy and. You know, America specifically was built on, like, you know, these twin beams of, like, you know, chattel slavery and and, and theft of the, 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 the continent. And it's like, those are the beams the house sits on, but you don't even realize that the ground that the, the house sits on is toxic masculinity.
1: No, it, it is. And what's more is it really becomes an integral part of a person's identity. And the narrative of themselves. That's one of the things that's happening in this country right now. One of the re- there are a ton of reasons we're fighting over history, right? And that's that that's a canary in the coal mine when it comes to fascism. Is like they want to control history and they want to change the narrative so people don't understand what has happened and, and how things have arrived where they're at. But another reason that we're fighting about history is because people don't want to confront. Who they are and how they became who they are i have learned so i've now been active i got thrown in the deep end of the pool back in 2016 that's when i suddenly completely to the shock of myself and everyone who knew me i suddenly became a political pundit and analyst i was not expecting any of this with the last seven years of my life that's that is who i am and what i've become i i have noticed people do not like it when i talk to them about their privilege they they they, they do not want to have that discussion. Uh, You know, pundits do not want to talk to me because I come from a poor Indiana background. They don't want to talk about the fact that they're mostly legacy people whose parents were in media and they went to Ivy League schools and they had the money. Also, by the way, they're white often. And like this thing, that door open, that door open. Nobody wants that. Most people would like to go ahead and live a life of little introspection whatsoever. And uh, and 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 I like to do this thing. I'll, I'll be honest with you, Scott, because we're we're having like a real conversation here. Like I I understand it. I get that. That makes sense to me. You know what I mean? Like I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. When we're done with this, I have a group meeting to go to. I've got my own shit that I'm working on, right? Just because I wrote a book about this, just because I'm talking to you on a podcast, just because I have my own podcast, I'm writing a new book, I'm campaigning, I'm organizing just because I've got it quote unquote figured out. Doesn't mean that my shit is fixed, right? Because healing means understanding that there's always work to do. Well, I'll tell you what you caught me on a day where I'm tired. I'm really tired of doing that work. It hurts. It really does. I think a lot about... Um, uh, I seen my eyes are all
0: that in the, the original theaters, and I haven't seen it since, but yes.
1: So you might remember, your listeners will remember, there's a moment where one of the characters in The Matrix betrays all the other heroes, and he he goes to the the the, the machines who have created this false reality, and he says, put me back in. Put me back in and erase my memories of what's going on. I just want to go back to living in this fake reality. Oh, my God, I wish I could go back into the fake reality. My life, and here's the thing. I I, I tell this story a little bit in um in The Man They Want Me To Be, and I'll go ahead and recount it very quickly. I had a character that I played. Eventually, after I bucked this mm, hyper-masculinity, toxic masculinity, I had a character that I relied on. Let's call him Rowdy. I was named after, this, for a guy who writes about masculinity, it's funny, my middle name Yates is after a character named Rowdy Yates, played by Clint Eastwood <laughs> on Rawhide, right? Which is hilarious. Um, everybody thinks I'm like some sort of East Coast, like elitist, you know? like. But instead, it just so happens I'm named after a TV cowboy, played by Clint Eastwood. I had a character that I played named Rowdy Yates, and he was a hellraiser. He ran around drinking, looking for bar fights, jumping from woman to woman. Like, I was not great. I, that was one of the worst parts of myself. But I'll tell you something. Life was, quote, unquote, easier. I hurt. I came to the point of nearly killing myself multiple times. But day to day, there was no introspection. It was all cruise control. You know what I mean? It was anesthetizing the pain. It was drinking. It was fighting. It was finagling. It was running around keeping from the pain. I get why people do it. I get why people want to play those characters. Right now, I could make the decision after we're done, right? Like you and I having a real conversation, an intimate conversation, and, and i'm not joking here this is something when i think about like political ecosystems and how things work i can pick up my phone and i can decide i'm doing my heel turn right now and people don't know what a heel what a heel turn is but in wrestling that's when you become a bad guy right i i'm i'm a, I'm a face i'll be honest with you i'm an anti-fascist I fight against white supremacy and, and toxic masculinity i could pick up my phone as we talk Commit a, f- a heel turn and become a MAGA diehard right wing pundit, and I'll tell you something. Oh, my! More money, right Yeah. I'm, oh, they would love my ass for me to have done this for seven years and then come over to their side. They would love me. They would absolutely adore having me. I would make more money, and I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have nights where I wasn't sleeping because I wouldn't be thinking about it. I would be on cruise control. All of that is to say it takes a lot of work to heal. What you did at the beginning of this podcast by opening up your soul and talking about where you were back in 2020, that's bravery, man. And for you to have looked in the mirror and dealt with your shit... That's huge. And to continue talking about it and investigating and healing from it, that is absolute bravery. And it's the only thing that's going to save us from fascism in the long run, (laughs) not to put the pressure on you. But the entire point of this is it makes sense why people don't do it. You know what I mean? It hurts. It hurts like hell. And I get why they don't. But the, the thing is, We need to create a situation where more people do it and more people fight back against it and more people begin the process of healing because that's the only way culture heals. And because our
0: culture is so poisoned and toxic, uh, some of the best tools to begin healing are out of reach for entirely too many people. Um, You know, therapy, great. Big fan. Recommend it to everybody. There's a lot of places where there are there you know there's no therapists available. There's if you don't have health insurance, it's incredibly expensive. Even if you do have health insurance, maybe they only pay for so much. Um, it, it, it's you know the, the 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 capitalism, the culture turning
1: healing into a commodity that you have to buy. Yeah. And and I want to say, because you just touched on something really, really important. And this is something I'm, again, I'm working on this new book about the, I, I totally believe that our political and cultural crisis is a mental health crisis. I think that's like one of the great undergirdings of this whole thing. And, you know, I talk to people a lot. And they're like, what's the difference between your analysis of what's going on in the country and a conspiracy theory? And I tell them there's no people aren't in a smoky room. They're not sitting around saying we're going to hurt people. We're going to like some people do. Do not get me wrong. But that's not how most things happen. What actually happens is that there is a symbiotic relationship between capitalism And a lot of systems that make life worse for people. And let me tell you something. What you just described, and again, I'm a Hoosier too. I come from, you know, you're you're down in Southern Indiana. I come from Southern Indiana. I will tell you, I come from a family of factory workers, prison guards, uh, miners, uh, laborers. Right? Do you know how many of them would guess? Absolutely zero. None, except for people who ran across the long. Right. And what actually has happened in this country is that mental health, particularly mental health services, has become it's very strange how capitalism has worked in the post-industrial society. Wealthy people, they'll they'll go to therapy. Right. But most of it is to deal with sort of the, the main of privilege. Right. Which is like, I have so much. Why should I have it? You have a middle class that by and far goes to therapy. And the reason, by the way, is because the professional administrative class, they see the people who are hurting. They have to act as the middle managers between them and the people who own the businesses. The people who own the businesses are not dealing with the workers anymore, right? The the professional administrative class, they are going to therapy. They are, uh, uh, I'm going to use the technical term, they're real fucked up. And the more that I've been around this country and had interactions politically, organizing-wise, like working on things, there's a problem there as, like, things get worse and worse and worse. That pathology gets worse. The working class isn't going to therapy. The working class, first of all, couldn't afford it if they wanted to. Second of all, culturally, they have a stigma against it. And here's the incredible thing. They have been. And brainwashed is the wrong word, but you know what? It's getting late. I'm going to use it. They have been brainwashed and convinced that they don't deserve it. That not only is it a sign of weakness to go get your head checked out, but also they don't have much worth. The only thing that they're worth is their labor. The only thing they're worth is their sacrifice. And I'm not joking when I say this, how many men in my family I have heard say, when I die, don't cry over me. Throw me in a hole in the ground. That's all. That's what they believe that they deserve, right? The only thing that they could give their family is their body. That's it. Their labor, their suffering, their body, they're done. As a result, do you know where most mental health services are given to poor people? Mm-hmm. Law enforcement. The judicial system. So what has actually happened with the rise of neoliberalism starting in the 1970s, 1980s, is actually you had a bunch of money taken out of mental health services that would have helped the people that we're talking about. And it was put into law enforcement. And that is both coincidental in that it helps capitalism continue to chug along and create this necessary inequality between the classes. But also, there are very smart people who understand what they're doing. Right. So it's not a smoky filled room. It's processes that continue to play themselves out. But what is what has happened is the environment has gotten worse and worse and worse. And so instead of people actually getting the help that they need and facing like what's going on, which, by the way, would make them rise up. Like, you don't want people thinking about this. You don't want my family thinking about why they don't have mental health services. You don't want my family thinking about why power works the way that it does. You want them going to work, and you want them tired. You want them not to have time to sit around reading books like mine. And by the way, they could. We have a terrible stigma in this country that these people are stupid. They deserve what they have. They're, you know, and, and I, I take this personally. Every time I'm on, on one of these shows and they talk about how stupid people are and how idiotic the MAGA people are, they're tired. They, they weren't able to go to college like me. They weren't able to learn critical thinking skills at a collegiate level like me. They sure as hell don't have the free time that I have. It's not that they're stupid. It's that they've been kept in a place where they don't have access to these things, they don't have the time, they don't have the energy. And that stuff, it's intentional and also coincidental at the exact same
0: time. You're talking about privilege and, you know, some of the elites or whatever the, that you talk to and how they don't really, you know, realize their own privilege. Now, if you talk to people, say rural white folk, about white privilege, yeah. um, and, and they're oh, like— God. Where, where is this white privilege? Where is it getting me? And, and, you know, I, I, you can feel that, um, what do you say to those people?
1: You know what I do usually, and, and this is something, it took me a while to get there because my family, um, I, I, I gotta tell you, Scott, I was so, I was so heartbroken to see my family taken over by Trumpism, you know, because, you know, uh, my, my family, again, laborers, they smell bullshit a mile away you know they 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 know that trump, they know that trump is full of shit they've seen this guy they've they've been laid off by this guy they know it you know what i mean it just so happens that they found themselves their prejudices have been activated old cultural stories have been activated like the fact that donald trump basically merged with the evangelical community and took advantage of these conspiracy theories On top of that, the culture war divide, we don't have time to get into the fact that the Democratic Party has become the party of the professional managerial class and has basically given up on the Midwest entirely. And then people look around, they're like, why are they not voting for Democrats? And it's like, well, good God, there's a lot of reasons, you know? And so what I have learned, and it took me a while to do this, is I have simply rejected that premise. If somebody wants to talk to me about, and I call them trench warfare topics, right? If somebody comes up to me and they're like, "Oh, I bet you voted for Joe Biden," and I'm like, "Well, guess what? I, Joe Biden's not my guy. I, 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 yes, I voted for Joe Biden over Donald Trump, and I think everybody should have. You know, I think we deserve better than Joe Biden, but I voted for him over Donald Trump. And all of a sudden, they're like, "Wait, you don't, you don't like Biden?" And I'm like, "Well." He's not my favorite. No, I would much rather move on from Joe Biden. And all of a sudden what they do, weirdly enough, is they're like, well, I kind of know Donald Trump's full of shit. It's like, oh, okay, so now we're having a different conversation. So when you get to the point, actually, and the privilege thing is a really interesting thing. You cannot convince these people that they have personal privilege. You can't do it head on. You know what I mean? Because they have been taken advantage of. The story of the United States over the last 50 years, not to mention beyond that, has been these people being taken advantage of and used up and spit out. What you can do, however, is you can make common cause. You can point out that other people who have come under the tyranny of white wealthy elites, who, by the way, are trying to destroy democracy, they want to take away these people's votes. They want to take advantage of these people. And there's no difference between Donald Trump and the neoliberals who did it before. It's just that he says other things and is willing to use the authoritarian whip. Well, you start making common cause. They understand that. They get that. And when you're not talking about like normal red, blue talking points, you're having human conversations, right? But sitting there going back and forth over who has privilege, do they have privilege as a white person? Absolutely, they do, right? But that's a hard thing to go ahead and start with. You can talk about that later when you're about ten <laughs> beers in, you know, and you can start to have a discussion. Otherwise, but it takes a while to get there, starting at that point. But I, I reject the premise. I start elsewhere and then I move my way over.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's like a way of uh, piercing the 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 black and white, or well, in this case, red or blue. Um, you know. <laughs> un-nuanced kind of dichotomy that we've got set yep. up and, and and going back to the, the 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 thing this is all about that is part of the result of toxic masculinity is being unable to process difficult feelings and difficult thoughts and and being able to talk through things uh it's just like no there is black or white there is good or evil there is
1: you know right and wrong um you know what i'm saying yeah, Can I make a point on that real fast? Yeah. So one of the things, and you know, it, it took me, I, I recognize this when it happened, but it took me a while to run this through my head. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like finding out something that you already knew and you've known it for a long time. you have just been sort of chewing on it and processing it. When Donald Trump came on the political scene, most people didn't take him seriously um, You know, he was covered as a sideshow and, you know, basically all these media outlets gave him billions of dollars of free coverage. Myself and others like me immediately recognized that something bad was happening. And we knew it not just because we saw it with our families, right? We saw that our families became radicalized and called to this very quickly. But I'll tell you another reason. I've had abusive dads. I've had abusive patriarchs in my family. I've known what it feels like to wait for a father figure to come home from work and be terrified that he's going to be in a bad mood. You know, I've, I've had conversations with grown ass men, heads of families, and the moment that they feel challenged, they react with anger and violence. If you say something they don't agree with, it's not like they try and have a reason to conversation. Right, they react with bluster and verbal abuse. They make you feel small. In fact, and this is one of the Donald Trump uh, rhetorical tricks that uh, is is a giveaway. They make you feel ridiculous. They make you feel like you're a sentimental wimp. You don't understand how the world actually works. They do. They're a realist, and everyone else is trying to play kumbaya and, and, and live in a fantasy world, but they don't have what it takes to get the job done. By the way, that's what fascists and Nazis are arguing all the time. This is one of the reasons why a lot of the alarm bells went off. And I realized a lot of these people grew up with these men. A lot of these people had these men for husbands. A lot of the people had these brothers, nephews, cousins, bosses. Church leaders, you name it. And what has happened is that cycle of, of abuse that we've talked about, it has played itself out. For people who aren't in it, they see that he's ridiculous. They see that he's an absurd, like soft wimp of a man. Right. But the people who were raised up in that reality that we're talking about it ha- immediately, you heard it and you were just like, there it is. That that's my stepfather right there. That is why this thing is happening. And that is one of the reasons he has the grip he does over the." It's, it's, it's yeah. the like I, I'm, I'm only doing this because I love you sort of thing. And then they, they love him back. Yep. Yes, this is for my own good. I said, I said a while back. It was, um, you know, on the Muckrake podcast. We do, we have documented uh, the the absolute uh, incredible historic collapse of the Ron DeSantis presidential campaign. Like how absolutely he, the guy's got no juice. He has no ability to talk to other human beings like another human being. I But, but one of the things I realized, <laughs> I I kind of do too. You know, like, like there is a coldness. To him that you're like, oh yeah, this guy cut his teeth as a lawyer at Guantanamo Bay signing off on people being tortured, right? That's who he is. We recognize it, and our body mm-hmm, repulses from it. Um, you know, he's like in a movie where they have like a, an executioner. And everyone's like, no, I don't, I don't know. We're not, we're not doing this. But also, he tried too hard to get the MAGA crowd. The MAGA crowd likes that Donald Trump hates them. The MAGA crowd loves that he shows obvious disdain for them, right? Because they don't think they deserve something better. They don't believe that they deserve better representation. They don't believe that they deserve a better leader. That is what they have been told their entire lives that they deserve. And as a result, he comes across as authentic to them. He's not pandering to them. He's not a regular politician. Instead, he's the dad that the country needs. And it is tragic. It is really, really tragic. And it, it when you boil it down psychologically and you see, I mean, it, it's... And by the way, I'm not sitting here, like, making this up. Like, this is what is happening. And, like, any expert you talk to is just like, yeah, absolutely. This is what is at the heart of it. And if you actually look at it that way, it becomes so much more sad, but also so much more dangerous. You know what I mean? Like, it really, it really, like escalates what this thing is and what it's capable of being oh
0: jared we're a we're a couple middle-aged white guys from indiana how are how are we going to talk to other middle-aged white guys from indiana and and get them to see this yeah
1: well first of all i i love i looked at the the time on the interview i was like yeah this is about the time in most of my interviews where someone lets out a That that always feels good. I I I feel you know, I joke a lot. I joke a lot that I'm probably the most optimistic prof, prophet of doom that there is. Like I, I do think things are going to be okay, but I also need people to understand, hey, mm-hmm. we're in the middle of it. <laughs> like this is a bad situation. I'm not gonna sit here and, and you know, try and make you feel better just to feel better. Like there's a lot of work we need to do. I think here's the thing. When we talk about politics and people say, What can we do? People are often asking, where's the button? The, where's the one button that we can push that will just fix all of this? And we've kind of been told that. If we go to a certain place the first November of every four years, if we just take that day, we go to a certain place, we press a certain button, we pull a certain lever, it'll be fine. You buy the That's product, you your do. life will be better, right? Um, but buy the product, you could, you could not have nailed that more dead to rights. Right. You're you're buying the product, take the ride. So basically the bad news is democracy is more than that. That is base level minimum participation. Um, we have to rebuild our communities, we have to rebuild trust, we have to, we have to heal writ large. That's also a big task. That's a life, lifelong work. You know what I mean? Like it really is. But let me start smaller. Do not accept the bare minimum from the men in your life. And by that I I I'll say this I um I won't get into specifics but every time I have a conversation with another man I am so disappointed when it's not a real conversation mm-hmm. do you know what I mean when it's not about like like if I ask a guy how he's doing and he can't talk to me about how he's doing he can't talk to me about the world how the people he loves are doing i'm so disappointed i'm actually i'm actually lonelier than than if i wasn't with somebody in general you know i uh, listen i love sports like i i i, I could not uh, i i love sports so much it's part of my heritage growing up in indiana like i root for the hoosiers i root for the cubs like i i, I love it exactly but i'll tell you what and I'll talk sports with you. I'll talk about the fact that the Chicago Bears have looked better recently. Oh, they're not going to do anything, <laughs> but they look better. Like I can do that, and I would love to do that, but that is not the sum of me, yeah. right? And that's not the sum of someone else either. Men retreat into sports and hunting and these other things as as a fake self. So they can talk about something without talking about anything. I think the saddest thing in the world is to go out in the world and see two men sitting at a bar not talking to each other. I think it's so tragic because both of them need someone to talk to. Both of them need someone to ask how they're doing. And as long as they don't, I wrote this in the in the book, they are each other's jailers. Because each guy thinks the other guy would think worse of them if they talked about how they're feeling. insecure. They make them gay. Exactly. And so here is my entire point. Stop accepting the bare minimum from men. If you ask a man how he's doing, he says, fine, ask more questions. Let him know that you're not going to think less of him. If he's sad, if he's insecure, let him know you'll think more of him. And, you know, in some, and and by the way, that always needs a caveat. If that puts you in danger, don't do it. But if you have someone you care about, ask him. Be real with them. Accept nothing more than than actual humanity and intimacy from them. And that's a way to start changing the world. It makes a huge difference. I saw it with my dad. I've seen it with other men. I've seen it with friends. It makes all the difference in the world. You know what, Jared, that as, as much as I would love to keep you all night and just pick your brain, I think that right there
0: is a real good place to wrap this thing up.
1: Well, I appreciate you so much. Um, you know, you you really touched my heart by uh, telling me your story, and I, I, I can't tell you what that means to me, and thank you for this conversation and what you're doing. It's always nice to know that uh, people are uh, holding down the home fires in the home states. So. Right. Thank you so much.
0: That was my interview with author Jared Yates Sexton. I didn't give him a chance to plug himself at the yeah. end, but you can find his substack over at jaredyatesexton.substack.com. Absolutely worth a subscription. And you can find him over on Twitter or whatever you want to call it these days at jysexton. Uh, mandatory follow. Absolutely worth it. So, a few thoughts to wrap up. Um, I think toxic masculinity is kind of the foundation for Every problem we're having in the world right now—religious fundamentalism, war, um, you know, patriarchy, and all of its discontents—and I'll be honest, I, I kind of feel like I have a little case of uh, imposter syndrome coming out here and and talking about this as if I were some sort of expert on the topic. Like, I mean, who am I? <laughs> um. You know, Jared and I talked about this, and I mentioned, like, the, uh, you know, the guy popping champagne meme. I know you've all seen it. Um, premature celebration, you know? Um, like, feeling a complacency for having the completed, f- the first step and acting as if you won the race. And uh, I, I'm still there. I still struggle with it. Um, I think for a lot of people that don't participate overtly in some of the most toxic masculine stuff. The the violence, the boys don't cry, the overt misogyny and homophobia, you know, that stuff is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and And step two is to realize that it got you too. Like we were talking about, does a fish know it's wet? And that's the next step, is to realize that as men in America in particular, but the West in general, it got us too. we are wet. And and we have to look at that privilege and entitlement and explore the ways that it affects us. Uh, you know, a lot of guys will suffer from this nice guy syndrome um, right lady? like you're a white knight that's you know so woke because you realize the 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 harms of toxic masculinity and you think you're above it without realizing it's got all of us uh, it's like a, a thumbprint put to each young man as we're raised in this culture um, I'm certainly not over it, I mean, an hour before my interview with Jared, uh, I was in a marriage counseling session with my wife. She will be the first to tell you I'm still struggling with these things. Um, you know, I, I, I struggle with to identify my own emotions, and anger is often the first one that pops up, and it's, you know, sometimes it's hard to know why. Um... It's hard to slow down and take that half a second to think about why. Um, I can I you know, I I'm prone to anxiety and depression and uh, I can withdraw and feel shame when I I get that way. Um, my diet's not great and I probably drink more than I should, but um it's a process, right? And we talked about that and, and uh, So let's have a little grace with ourselves, realize that we've been handicapped in a way by our culture, and there's a lot of work to do. The protege effect is a psychological phenomenon where teaching, pretending to teach, or preparing to teach information to others helps a person learn that information. For example, a, a student who is studying for an exam could benefit from the protege effect and improve their understanding of the material by teaching that material to their peers. And uh, I, yeah, I feel like maybe this is an exercise in that. And uh, I might be doing this for myself more than I'm doing it for you. But um, let's be vulnerable with each other, guys, and, uh, you know, do this together. I promise it's not gay if we hold hands. I got some book recommendations for you. Uh, Liz Plank, For the Love of Men. Absolutely, absolutely necessary. Great book. Recommend it to everybody. Uh, Terrence Real is a psychologist uh, and has several books, but the one I read is called How Can I Get Through to You?, And finally, um, Justin Baldoni, the guy who was the male lead on Jane the Virgin. You wouldn't think you would find, like, such an important book from this guy. It's not fair. Like, he writes beautifully, and he's talented, and is incredibly good-looking. So uh, that one's called Man Enough, Undefining My Masculinity. Uh, And obviously, again, Jared Yates Sexton, the man they wanted me to be. Christmas is coming up. Buy two copies for the men in your life, one for them and one they can give to a friend when they're done. So that is it for me this time on the Who's Left podcast. Find me on Facebook and the site formerly known as Twitter at ScottRodge78. Subscribe to my Substack over at ScottAaronRogers.substack.com and Please, please, please share with at least one other person. I will be back next week to discuss the Israel-Hamas war with my favorite Palestinian-American Hoosier. Until then, I'm Scott Aaron Rodgers. Love each other, Indiana.